LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is the next big idea. Today, how to fail intelligently. As hopefully many of you know, about a year ago, we launched a daily version of this podcast called The Next Big Idea Daily, which is hosted by my friend and co-founder, Michael Kovnat, who happens to be here with me now in real physical space. Hey, Michael. Hey, Rufus. So, Michael, maybe just give listeners who haven't heard The Next Big Idea Daily, those poor souls, a quick (laughs) pitch for the show. Yeah, the next big idea daily, as the name implies, is a daily show. It's a short format show. We keep them to 10 or 15 minutes so you can listen while you're walking the dog, making your coffee. And the idea is each day we present you the key insights from a recent work of nonfiction, usually a book in the worlds of psychology or creativity or productivity. You know, I think of them as mini masterclasses, life lessons you can absorb in 10 to 15 minutes. And I think that theme of the books that you tend to cover is not accidental because I know you, Michael, to be someone who's a little bit of a productivity nerd. You're kind of a sucker for these kinds of books about management and psychology and yes. personal productivity, the latest like journaling system. Oh, yes. I love a good <laughs> journaling system. Yeah, no, I, I take that as a compliment. I am kind of a productivity nerd and and you know, kind of a self-help nerd. I know that word self-help has a bit of a negative connotation to it, but come on, what's wrong with helping yourself? We all should be helping ourselves. And as long as we're using sort of smart science and research-based books that will help us do that, bring them on, you know? So I'd like to think of it as evidence-based self-help. I love it. And that is precisely why when a new book came across my desk called Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well by Harvard Business School professor Amy Edmondson, I thought this has Michael Kavnat written all over it. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely up my alley. Why don't you give listeners a quick sketch of who Amy is and what her book is all about? Sure. So Amy Edmondson is a professor at Harvard Business School, as you said. She's probably best known for developing this idea of psychological safety, which is the idea that when you look at innovative and especially successful organizations, they tend to have this quality where people feel safe, safe to speak up, to speak their mind, to point out problems, safe to fail. And and that ability to kind of be comfortable admitting to and, and discussing failure is really important. And we've all heard this, that we should embrace failure, that that failure is just a signal. Although acting on it is another thing. I'm not sure, Michael, that I'm so good at this. I, I feel like I occasionally hug failure, but I'm not sure I fully embrace failure. I, I need some help here. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the idea that you should embrace failure, it's not, it's really not as simple as that, as Amy points out, because there are some failures that are catastrophic that you don't want to have. I mean, the obvious example is, you know, you're an airline pilot. You've got hundred souls in the back of your plane, you're flying thousands of feet in the air. That's not an environment where fail fast, fail often is good advice. You know, you don't want to embrace failure in that environment. On the other hand, if you're an airline pilot and you're in a flight simulator, sure. not only is that 
a safer environment, but actually that's an environment where you do want to fail. The whole point of being in a simulator is to kind of test your limits and sort of create scenarios that are hard, that, that you don't quite know how to handle. And by going up to the edge of failure like that, that's how you learn. So I think her idea, Amy's idea is, how can we create more flight simulators in our lives, in our relationships, in our businesses? How can we create contexts where we can push ourselves to the edge of failure, even cross over and fail, but in a way where we learn without catastrophic downsides? Mm, yeah. Now, it occurs to me, Michael, that this may be an important criterion for me when it comes to choosing environments, because I prefer environments where failure is not catastrophic. I'm so mm -hmm. grateful to the surgeons and the pilots out there, but I would really rather have an occupation where failure is, is, uh, uh, is not the end of the world. Flight simulator environments. Yeah, oh, I think you're in a good space then because digital media companies like Next Big Idea Club, that's a place where you can take some chances, try some things out, and if, they, if you fail, no innocent lives are lost, hopefully. Yes, only ideas at stake here, Michael, and it's, it, it's a great place for us. Uh, let's take a break, and when we come back, let's listen to your conversation with Amy Edmondson. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. So, Amy Edmondson, welcome to The Next Big Idea. Thank you so much for having me. Really great to have you. Do you mind if I introduce you as an expert in failure? <laughs> I think so. I, I, I believe I am a failure expert, and I know how that sounds. Yeah. I mean, I guess some of us wouldn't want to be thought of as a failure expert, but I guess that's kind of your point, right? That maybe we, yes. maybe we should, you know, maybe we should yeah. embrace, embrace it. Yeah, I mean, recently I've been I've been putting it like this. It's, um, you know, the people who really succeed in any field, you know, the Nobel Prize winners, the elite athletes, they are people who have failed more, not mm -hmm. less often than the rest of us. What's interesting in your book and in your work is, I mean, that idea is out there, right? We all know mm -hmm. that you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. You exactly. Know, that you, it's kind of become cliche. conventional wisdom and cliche to know that, we, that, that you have to fail and you have to learn from your mistakes. But we never really talk about how to do that. You know, like mm -hmm. it's easy to say learn from your mistakes, but the actual process of absorbing the information from your mistakes, learning and growing is something that's under-discussed, I think. Yes. And and additionally, what's under-discussed is discernment, right? That, mm. that not all failure is good. And yes, I think you can learn from all or at least most failure. But part of what converts this from mere, you know, happy talk to something useful and powerful is being clear about the conditions under which failures are good and valuable and the conditions under which they are not. When I was reading your book, I at first I had this reaction of like, well, I'm not sure if this is really for me because it seems kind of 
abstract. Why do we? Mm. Why is she spending so much time categorizing different types of failure? <laughs> I mean, unless I'm an academic studying right. failure, Who cares? do I really need to know these different kinds? And it sort of only gradually dawned on me, like, oh wait, but maybe I do because the reason why it's hard to learn from my mistakes is because I. I think they're all kind of the same kind of thing, and they're embarrassing. Right. But by taking the time to figure out, well, there are dumb mistakes, and there are things we want to avoid, but then there are another kind that are valuable, and, and we should sort of understand that difference so we can do more of the good kind and less of the bad kind. Is that right? It's exactly right. And, you know, you put your finger right on something that, that I'm quite insecure about, which is I know I'm abstract. Mm. The job of the book was to convince you, at least by the end or maybe by a quarter of the way in, that it's not abstract. It's very concrete and very practical because once you, you know, once you become comfortable making these distinctions, then, you know, you really can feel okay about the intelligent failures in your life. And you really can try to hold yourself more accountable for preventing the preventable kinds rather than, as you said, being embarrassed about all of them. Right. I wonder, when you wrote this book, did you have a target audience in mind? I mean, do you think of this as for business leaders or for parents or for just everybody? Yeah, and I, I know that the wrong answer is everybody, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I'm going to say everybody, but I'm going to tell you how, how to get there. My principal audience over the last 25 years has been management people, coaches, consultants, you know, people who, who think about business and organizations. That's what they, they do. That's what they study. And yet this topic, I think, is so immediately applicable to one's life as well. And so the more I dug in and the more I tried to convert academic ideas to a, a readable book, the more I began to feel, no, this is for everybody. This is for young adults just starting their careers. This is mm -hmm. for parents of young kids. You know, th this is for um, people in in science or those who want to do a startup, right? <laughs> and the, the the more I got into it, the more I thought, I can't think of who to exclude here. Yeah, right, right. I came away thinking, I need to be making more mistakes, good ones, you know? <laughs> yeah, more <laughs> failures. More right? failures. So okay, there I'm going to correct you because, and maybe this is um, just an academic distinction, but I think of a mistake as you can only make a mistake if there is a known process already, a recipe to get the result you're trying to get. If you have a failure in brand new territory, then it's not a mistake. And, and maybe I can illustrate that with like a a blind date, right? Mm. You know, you 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 go on a blind date. Maybe a friend introduces you that you have good reason to believe it could be it could be great, and it isn't. And is that a mistake? No. I mean, the only mistake would be to stay home and never do anything. Mm -hmm. It's just a failure, but it's not a mistake. Yeah, and it's not academic, I guess, and this was part of my realization that these distinctions are are meaningful because if we conflate mistakes and failures and right. you know, intelligent failure with dumb mistakes, we we lose a lot. And you talk about this in 
in the book, there are cliches around this idea of, on the one hand, failure is not an option. You know, <laughs> failure must be avoided at all costs. And then on the other hand, sort of the Silicon Valley mantra of mm. fail often, fail fast, you know, embrace failure, failure is good. And that covers up a lot of sins, right? Because there are some kinds of mistakes we really want to avoid. There's some kind of yes. failures that we we should embrace. And, you know, like like why is this idea of fail fast fail often, too simplistic? It's too simplistic because it's only sensible for certain contexts, but mm -hmm. not all contexts, or certain situations, not all situations. And to be even more specific about that, it only makes sense in new terrain. We don't have the knowledge we need to get a result we're trying to get. Mm -hmm. and, and nobody has it. It's not just that I don't have it, but if I looked it up on the internet, I'd find it. It's just that it doesn't exist. And so the mm. only way to make progress, the only way to make progress in new territory is to try it, right? To try and see what happens. And if you try something that you had good reason to believe might work mm -hmm. and it doesn't work, it's valuable data. It, it, it it's just gets you one step closer to the result. When, by finding out right. what didn't work, you get closer to the result. And so, you know, so the fail fast mantra makes sense when for, for two things have to be true. One, there's no other way to find the information but, okay. but, to, but to try something. And two, the stakes have to be low enough. Right? You, you don't fail fast when you could, in so doing, kill people. Or right. lose all the money you have. Right? That that would just not be smart, no matter how you slice it. Right. This is not good advice for airline pilots, as you say, right. or, exactly. or neurosurgeons. Yeah, or even even um, managers of of factories. You know, they would mm -hmm. laugh in your face if you said, "Hey, let's let's go to work today and fail fast, fail often." You're like, mm -hmm. are you kidding? No, I'm I'm going for Six Sigma. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going for near perfection. Yeah, well, we'll get into that a little bit later because I, I do, I think that idea of paying attention to the scale of the stakes, you know, mm -hmm. and it is really an interesting one so that you don't want to, it, it's stupid to risk too much, but that in low stake situations, you, you should experiment a lot, you know, so that you right. should be, so, you know, how can we, um, how can we find situations like pilots have in flight simulators, you know, where they're not going to kill anyone, but they can learn a lot, and but they can only learn a lot if they push themselves. So where, exactly. where else can we kind of create those sort of scenarios in right. our work, in our lives? And that to me is the perfect metaphor, right? Because what are the, what are the simulators in your life, right? Where, mm. where are the places where you can, like, for instance, I can have a very open conversation at home, I can take risks that I might not take, you know, with strangers about, mm -hmm. about saying things that might be, you know, controversial, <laughs> right. just so that we can think, we can think aloud about, you know, well, what, do, what, what do we really think here? And so that's because it's a, it's a, um, you know, it's offline, it's behind closed doors. It's, it's like a simulator for developing some, some new thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I were on a hike yesterday and we definitely were having one of those conversations where it's like, we wouldn't say this in front of anyone else, mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, we'll probably get in trouble if we say this publicly, but let's try saying this here and, you know, in this safe space, uh, try out this idea. Yeah, because it's, it's it, and, I, and I don't mean to imply here something I'm absolutely certain about, but I know it would be unpopular, but more like, here's, I'm thinking about it this way, and am I on, am I off base, or what are your thoughts? And, you know, just to, to have that environment to think aloud 
and, yeah. and take risks. Well, now, Amy, you know, to all outside appearances, you are an extremely successful person, <laughs> a PhD, a much cited Harvard professor, author of multiple books. Tell me personally, what role has failure played <laughs> in your own life, if I may probe a little bit? You know, that's, a, that's um, it's an important question. And um, I suppose I have to start with the fact that for a very long time, it played as tiny a role as humanly possible, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I was I was one of those. Um, certainly, after after about fourth grade, I was one of those students who wanted to get an A on everything, mm-hmm. um, and so I worked hard and tried to, you know, to to really succeed, not fail. And on the one hand, I think that hard work paid off, or at least has a you know, a, a small part of the explanation for why I'm here. On the other hand, I have to admit to being quite not resilient, really. I certainly found myself um, thinking foolish thoughts like, you know, if I don't get an A on this, it'll be terrible, right? Mm-hmm. Which, of course, it wouldn't be. It would just be not getting an A. But that said, right, so that's that's school. And it turned out I was pretty good at school. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, there were lots of other contexts in, in which I was... Um, failing quite dramatically. For instance, I tried out for the basketball team. I I didn't make the team. That's fine, right? You don't all have to make the team. But that particular round of tryouts, they posted the results from the tryouts. And on the list of those who had made the team was just essentially a nice little list of people. On the list of people who would not make the team, there was only one name and that was mine. So that's public humiliation and failure at the same time. And, you know, fast forward, I I certainly have made many, many mistakes, um, Mm -hmm. which again, I define as things I could have done better if I were at my best. And I have felt painfully bad about about many of them, maybe most of them. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's that pain that led me to want to be more thoughtful about this, right? To be more systematic and, you know, got interested in what I'll call the science of it, right? The mm-hmm. science of failure and and the science of, uh, I'll call it the science of having a healthy reaction rather than unhealthy reaction. So I, I think the what I'm really trying to say is I am certainly guilty of having had an unhealthy relationship with failure, and I've worked hard to have a healthier one. Yeah, I mean, some of that might come along with being a a scientist, you know, a, yeah. a social scientist, because as you say, that's that's an arena in which a certain kind of failure is expected, right? It's a, you, you have a hypothesis, you test it, and, you know, sometimes- and it's wrong. It's wrong. <laughs> and, and that can feel bad. And I think you share some stories in your own research where, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you were really all set to find a particular conclusion and, oops, the data just didn't back it up. Exactly. But that, but as you say, that's what then led to the, the better data, you know, the, the, the better hypothesis, I should say. As you started this conversation with, you know, these sort of fun quotes out there, and and one of them is the Winston Churchill quote that that success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And again, it's easy to dismiss those kinds of things as as cliche or hey, not in my world. That's not how it works. But truly it is how it works, right? And it certainly works that way in science. And if you can't come, you know, if you can't get comfortable with being wrong. And not having everything work out perfectly, you won't last long in in the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 
I mean, to me, part of your book is just this idea that we should take this scientific method into the rest of our lives, right? Yes. It's exactly yeah. right. Let's be, let's be sort of, and maybe I'm overly logical about it, but let's be logical about it. Now, in terms of your your research, so you're you're probably most known or most referenced for your work mm-hmm. on psychological safety. I was wondering if you could say something about what that is and then maybe how that connects with your research on failure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so first, let me say what it is. So psychological safety describes an environment where you believe candor is welcome, that you're able to say, hey, I made a mistake, or hey, I need help, or here's a wild idea. Instead of being worried about what people think of you, you're focused on the topic or the work itself. And interestingly, I started really, with failure. I was interested in learning, right? How do organizations, how do people and organizations learn in a world that keeps stubbornly changing, right? And, and, And so... As a PhD student, I got invited to be part of a, a big study of medical error in hospitals. What I discovered by accident in that study was that there were dramatic differences across patient care units, patient care teams, if you will, in reporting behavior. So dramatic differences in the degree to which people felt it was possible to speak up about mistakes. In retrospect, that seems kind of obvious. It's maybe not obvious that within the same hospital, different teams would have very different norms and beliefs about it. And that was the sort of unexpected discovery of psychological safety, that that interpersonal climate at work is measurable Mm -hmm. and palpable and quite variable across groups. Mm -hmm. And I started to just think more and more about this, that if, if people can't speak up about errors, Gosh, their teams can't learn from them, right? And so then, you know, then patients won't be safe. And and so I began to think that something that sounds as either abstract or soft as the interpersonal climate might, in fact, be very important for an organization's ability to to learn and adapt and innovate as needed in a changing world. It's interesting because. You know, this gets to this point of why is it so hard to learn from our mistakes? And mm-hmm. in the collective context, it's it can be because, you know, we can't acknowledge our mistakes. There's not a, a culture that would accept us being open about mistakes. People will get fired if they make mm-hmm. mistakes. So mm-hmm. so there's a there's a right. tendency to hide them. But there's also I, I'm also thinking on the individual level, like, mm-hmm. you know, we need kind of internal psychological safety too, right? That we that we feel comfortable looking at our own mistakes and not feeling shame and embarrassment around them. That's right. And you're so right to identify these as two separate factors that often course, reinforce each other, but there mm-hmm. is the collective, there's the social, there's the, ooh, I don't want people to see me as a, you know, as a loser, so mm-hmm. I'm going to stay quiet, and then we don't learn. And then there's also the the kind of the self-talk and the, I would say, erroneous beliefs that if I make a mistake, I'm, you know, I'm a bad person or I'm, I feel ashamed. And and so we we quite naturally look away from our own errors and failures. Like we don't want to look at them. So we we just say, okay, you know, we sort of brush it off and we go forward rather than pausing 
to be curious, like what really happened and why did that happen and how are the ways that I contributed to it? And if we could just get more curious and less allergic, we would do better. You say it's hard to learn from our mistakes because of aversion, confusion, and fear, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we're talking about the aversion, you know, why we don't want to look at them. What's the confusion? How do we get confused? The confusion really is the lack of a simple, clear framework or set of categories that allow us to navigate these differences effectively. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, of course you're going to be confused if, you know, one book over here is saying fail fast, fail off and celebrate failure, have a failure party. And the other is saying this better be perfect. Lives are on the, on the line, et cetera. Like, is it a matter of which camp should I believe? Which camp should I sign up for? Um, is it a matter of balance? And I think, no, it's not even, it's not balance. It's under what conditions, right? In the laboratory, fail fast, fail often, fail small. In, you know, aviation, then please, failure is not an option. And you also say that fear keeps us from learning from our mistakes. And I think that's sort of the fear of social opprobrium, right? That that will look bad. And obviously that's a deep evolutionary instinct of ours is to to not lose the respect of the group, right? Exactly. And so, you know, fear, it all, these all do blur together a little bit, but fear is indeed what, what you, we were talking about before, the collective or the social aspect of failure. We really care um, how others think of us. We want them to think that we're, you know, we want them to like us. We want them to think we're successful, not failed. And the irony is, though, especially in interpersonal relationships, and I would say in work relationships too, that we like people better when they mm-hmm. are more vulnerable, you know, when we when Definitely. we see through the chinks in the armor, when 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 they're real with us. Um, in fact, I think that you convert an acquaintance, let's say, to a friend at that moment where you sort of share something real and vulnerable about yourself. Absolutely, I remember thinking about that years ago. I was really trying to think about why my good friends were my friends, mm-hmm. and. I realized that I think it's because sometime early on, we had a conversation where they admitted something embarrassing. Exactly. <laughs> or, you know, yeah. That they, right. they let me know, they let their guard down, they let me show their vulnerability. And that was so bonding that's for, it. for both of us. Yeah. And then we say, wow, you too? <laughs> mm-hmm. And right. then that's the bond, right? It isn't just, oh, good, I feel superior to you because you have that problem. It's like, oh, you too, right? So now we have a real bond that's more authentic than the the fake bond. There's this quote in your book that I responded to where you said, most of us don't stop to challenge our spontaneous emotional responses to the events in our lives, but you can learn how to do this. And it's a crucial skill to bring more learning and joy into your life. (laughs) And it did strike me that it's sort of a master skill, isn't it? Because we we all feel... Embarrassed, we all feel uh, regretful. We all, you know, feel some shame, but we don't have to just live in that and, and respond. But if we can learn how to interrogate those feelings and kind of look at them head on, that's how we're going to grow and learn. Exactly right, and and that is, you know, that that's a fundamental tenet of, say, cognitive behavioral therapy, and I think mm-hmm. many other clinical traditions, where part of I think maturity, but also happiness is getting in the habit of and being able to challenge your spontaneous reactions to the events in your life, right? Because we have a tendency to sort of, especially the, you know, not desirable events to awfulize, to 
sort of think, <gasps> you know, this is sort of the end of my life because, you know, I, I didn't make the basketball team. But you can learn to very quickly talk yourself off the ledge and sort of say, oh, well, you know, it's not right. what I, it wasn't my preferred outcome, but it's not the end of the world. Maybe I'll go try out for math club. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, speaking of basketball, you say that athletes in general have a healthy relationship to failure compared to most of us, right? So what, what is it right. about the realm of athletics that makes that sort of normalized in a well, way? Well, I think it's it's several things, but the, probably the most important is there is no sport out there that you aren't going to lose some healthy portion of the time. So you build up right. your failure muscles, right? You didn't know, you know, no basketball team wins every game. No tennis player wins every match. Um, and, and, you know, no, no soccer player is going to make every goal. So it's, you just, it's, you, you get more comfortable with the disappointments that those setbacks uh, bring. And you know, it's part of the sport. You don't have the option to, you know, only be successful if you're, you know, a serious athlete. In general, you say that there are types of people, you call them elite failure practitioners, yep. who just have this muscle. Any of your favorites you could share with us? Any individuals in particular you think have figured this out? One who's probably, you know, not terribly well known is Jim West, who's uh, in mm. his 90s now and who has uh, 250 patents for acoustic-related uh, inventions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I just, you know, I point to him because most of us aren't inventors, but clearly inventors are elite failure practitioners. There's a, the, the great quote from Thomas Edison that, that uh, I haven't failed. I just found 10,000 ways that didn't work. So they understand that. You know, they understand that if you're really trying to solve some problem that hasn't been solved before— that first shot isn't going to go right into the basket. And so what they have in common, and what, so he, you know, he was one of those kids, my older brother was one, so I'm quite familiar with the genre, who like took apart everything in the house. You know, mm -hmm. they, they just had this driving curiosity to figure out how things work and they want to make them work better. They want to, you know, they want to come up with, with, with new stuff. And so even from a very early age, they are comfortable with, not being right every time. West basically ultimately is credited with the invention of, of um, the electric microphone, which is right. in our smartphones, right? You know, which changed, changed the game for all of us because before that, you couldn't really get a microphone that was small enough, powerful right. enough, and didn't need so much energy to do what we're asking it to do. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today.
Let's talk about the different kinds of failure that that you talk about in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, the different categories that I was at first dismissive of because I thought, why do I need to know all these categories? <laughs> yeah. And then I realized there is something yeah, who cares? interesting and valuable there. I mean, your book is called Right Kind of Wrong, but I'd like to start by talking about some of the wrong kinds okay. of wrong, right? You're <laughs> okay. wrong. So let's talk about basic failure, which is something you spend some time on. I mean, this is, is this more the category of what I think of as dumb yes. mistakes? Stupid mistakes, exactly. <laughs> yes. So a basic failure is an undesired result in familiar territory that has a single cause. Mm-hmm. And and that single cause is, you know, almost always human error. I would say occasionally, like let's say you're making a souffle and the power goes out, it's you could say that's a basic failure. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a little bit a little bit of a judgment call. But anyway, but a basic failure for is is what we've been talking about here as stupid mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, although let's not call them stupid. Let's just call them mistakes because maybe we don't know enough about whether it was stupid or not stupid. All we know is it's theoretically preventable. Right? If right. we were re- really paying attention and following the knowledge that exists, we would have been able to get the result we wanted. Right, 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 right. These are, these are things we do because we weren't paying attention right. or we got overconfident or Yeah, we were making assumptions like that, right? that we didn't challenge or we didn't um, you know, follow the recipe that was quite readily available. Yeah. And on, I think there's a fine line here because on the one hand, everyone makes mistakes, as we know. Yep. These happen. But I think you're arguing that we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook. We, there are yeah. things we can do to avoid dumb yeah. mistakes. Yeah. You know, what What are some things we can do in this arena to make sure we're not making these kind of basic And And to be sure, I'm um, I'm I don't think we'll ever make human error go away. Mm-hmm. But when the, you know, when the stakes are medium to high... I think we should be dedicated to the effort to catch and correct errors before harm is caused. So just because I make a mistake doesn't instantly, in most cases, cause a failure. But if I, let's say, I speak up about it quickly or you notice that I've made it and and you intervene, oftentimes we can prevent the failure. Right? If I've just pulled the you know, the, the sugar rather than salt out of the closet and I'm about to use it, you can stop me before I ruin the cake. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. We can be lighthearted about our human propensity to make mistakes, but we really do want to do our best. We don't want to waste resources. We right. don't want to waste time. And so, and here's like, I'm now about to say something, you know, really boring and mundane, which is, the, the basic failure prevention strategies are such things as training, you know, mm-hmm. codification, you know, mm-hmm. let's get the knowledge that we do have down on paper so that it's available for others, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, vigilance, mm-hmm. mindfulness, you know, like just do your best, especially when the stakes are high. Checklists, right? Checklists, exactly. Nothing is more mundane than that. Yeah. But like, why not? You know, why not give yourself yourself a packing checklist so that you don't, you know, routinely forget socks or toothpaste Uh, or what have you, right? Just why not? Like, I have a checklist for traveling, which, you know, hopefully. Me too, because makes, I've made the error. I did the basic yeah. failures. Uh, and so it's like, no, let's not do that one again. One time forgetting your passport is all it takes to, oh, to learn that lesson. <laughs> that is for sure. Now, what about complex failure? What's complex failure? So complex failures are multi-causal. Um, mm-hmm. They are 
often but not always also in familiar territory. Sometimes um, complex failures can happen in in the innovation context, um, as, as, as I'll illustrate in a moment. But mm-hmm. complex failures are multi-causal. But the, the key here, in other words, they have many causes, but the key is any one of the factors that contributed to the failure on its own would not have caused the failure. Mm-hmm. So they're the perfect storm, right? They, you know, I, I left for the um, airport a little late. That on its own would have been fine. But then sort of an, an accident on the highway, mm-hmm. that added to it. And then, you know, whatever, right? My, mm-hmm. So five or six little things happened, unfortunately, at just the same time or in just the, in just the same moment that led to the failure. Right. And and you talk about some horrific ones, right? Like the, yeah. the Maui wildfire disaster, other kinds of giant disasters that, that are fatal, you know, to many people often. And right. it's, in some ways it's frustrating because often it's nobody's fault. It's no one exactly. person's fault, right? It's, it's a yeah. lot of little faults that kind of piled up into this. The downside of complex failures is that they're complex. Right. Um, the silver lining is that they present you many opportunities to catch and correct. Because usually all you have to do is take out one of the contributing factors and you can prevent the catastrophic part of the failure. Or not all complex failures are catastrophic. Some of them are tiny. You know, you missed right. the dentist appointment. Okay, so by paying attention to our basic failures, doing our checklists and being vigilant, Mm -hmm. we lessen the chances of contributing to a complex failure. But we're never going to eliminate it, right? Aren't aren't these kinds of things just something that, you know, our our complex society is just going to go through these big disasters periodically? Yes. I mean, here, the sad part for complex failures is they're on the rise because of the complexity, not only of our IT systems, but our interconnected mm-hmm. supply chains and and, mm-hmm. and all the rest. Like we live in a very interconnected world, and that is a breeding ground for complex failures. And the implications of that are that we have to get better at, at catching and correcting, responding thoughtfully to what I call ambiguous threats. Mm-hmm. Our tendency as humans and as organizations is to sort of downplay them, to wait and see. You see something that's like, mm, that doesn't quite look right. You know, that little, that little fissure in the cement. Um, right. But, you know, it's probably nothing. Let's wait and see. Versus are there tests we can run to just check? Like when you have right. that, you know, when you notice something, it's almost like, you know, when you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. But it's it's when you notice something, get curious. Don't just assume it away. It mm-hmm. might be nothing, yes, but it might be something. Okay, right. So we want to encourage people to pay attention to those sorts of things. But And also, this is where psychological safety comes in, right? That yes. you want to be in a culture that makes it okay to talk to others about it. Right. I mean, I got interested in complex failures because of the close relationship with psychological safety. You know, many of the complex failures that I've studied over the years, for instance, the Columbia shuttle failure of 2003, could have been prevented had people felt able to speak up in a timely way. And you're encouraging us to do this not just in our work lives, but in our personal lives, right, too, in our families. You want to make a – it's okay in a family for people to bring up problems or – Yes, because you really are trying to prevent worse problems, right? So right. I, mean, I think any parent of teenagers should 
explicitly put in place a kind of what I'll call like a, a blameless reporting equivalence, right? That that child um, should know that they are absolutely invited, no questions asked, to call and get a ride home if they are uncomfortable about a situation, right? And it will not be, they will not be yelled at for, well, why did you use your bad judgment and end up in that position in the first place? They'll just get that ride, right? Because safety yeah. trumps, you know, <laughs> anything else in, in, in that moment. And as a parent, the last thing you want is just is to not know what's really going on. That's the same as a as a as a manager. The last thing you want is to not know what's really going on. But often, the inadvertent, well-meaning behavior designed to inspire excellence instead inspires people to not admit the truth. This is the way problems get addressed and solved, isn't it? Like I've noticed in my life, sometimes I'll bring up a a mistake or a little problem I'm having. And I don't really know even what it is or what to do about it, but just saying it out loud, someone will then maybe add to that, like, oh, yeah. they, they've noticed something similar, or then we suddenly are on the path to solving it. But if I hadn't ever said anything, we would never know. Exactly. You know, yeah. And it's, on. you know, problem detection is something mm -hmm. that we all do very well, but problem solving is more often than not, a team sport. Right. right. You can't solve it right from where you sit. You need other inputs and other skills that, that you don't have. So if you're unwilling to speak up about something unless you're sure you've got it under control, forget about it. Lots right. of preventable failures come around that way. Do you have any examples of organizations that do this particularly well, that have a good culture around mis sharing mistakes? Pixar. Um, you know, wildly uh, engaging and delightful movies that have been both commercial and critical successes. And they only get there. You know, most in the movie business, it's a so-called hit business. There's a lot of losers and then some big winners. Um, Pixar has had nothing but winners. That's just not mm -hmm. possible, right, mm -hmm. in a kind of creative business. Well, the, the I would argue the reason is, is that they, they have all their moments of failure in-house, right? The, 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 they're, they've designed a system where people are able and willing to speak up with their criticisms along the way. You know, if, if a scene is boring or, if, or not compelling or doesn't look right, you know, people have learned it's not hurting your feelings to speak up about that now. It's what's necessary so that by the time it leaves us, it's really, really good. Okay, so we've talked about basic failure and complex failure. We saved the best for last. Those, those, <laughs> those are ones we don't want right. to, we, we want to try to find ways to avoid them. But there's right. another kind that you say we should be embracing pretty much. It's a kind of failure we mm -hmm. want more of in our life, and, and that's intelligent failure. How do you define that? So I define intelligent failure as the undesired result of a thoughtful foray into new territory. Mm -hmm. And they'll break that down, right? So it's, it's um, first of all, it's undesired. It's not what we wanted. It was a failure, not a success. Importantly, it was in new territory, meaning there was no available knowledge for how to get the result we wanted, or at least no, no um, you would not have been able to just get it right the first time because it's new, new terrain. Mm -hmm. It's goal-driven, right? It's not just um, randomly throwing darts at the wall. You have you have a um, 
you have a goal in mind, um, whether that's you know financial or recreational or find a life partner. You know, you're you're in pursuit of progress, and you have a hypothesis, meaning you've you've done your homework. You have good reason to believe this might work. Mm-hmm. It might not, but it might work. And then finally, and and super important, it should be as small as possible, right. meaning no bigger. Than it than it has to be to get the knowledge you need. So we, I'm not a fan of um, wasting time or resources or taking you know really big bets mm-hmm. where you can't afford to lose that that money or 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 that time or or you know to create a sort of potential safety problem. I, I, that last one is interesting to me because I think our culture sort of glamorizes making the, big bets, you know. Yes. Roll the dice, you know, go big or go home. Yep, right. Go bigger or go home. <laughs> yeah, which is just not, that's not how, I mean, maybe if you're, you know, in familiar territory, that makes mm-hmm. sense. But in new territory, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Now, keep in mind that big for you might be bigger than big for me, right? It's it, the, this is a judgment call. This has to do with what I can reasonably, you know, afford to put at risk in an uncertain experiment. Can you give a good example of an intelligent failure, you know, maybe whether it's from the business world or, or something that we all might recognize? The one that comes to mind, and it is from the business world, is the um, the innovation company IDEO. About 20 years ago, they decided to experiment with a new kind of service. Right? They what they offer is innovation services. So if you know you want a you know a new, I'm looking at my you know my my coffee cup here. You know if you want a new and better coffee cup. You go to IDEO and they design that for you. Mm-hmm. But about 20 years ago, they, just, they thought, you know, what if we helped companies figure out what products their customers might need? Right? What, 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 you know, what were the product innovation opportunities in the industries in which their customers were, were working? Rather than just design me a better pen, okay, here's a pen. And I got to study a very early foray into this innovation strategy services business. And it was a project for a, a, a company, a mattress manufacturer, that failed and that they came up with great ideas, but the company didn't do anything with it, which for IDEO is, it feels like a failure because mm-hmm, it, their mm-hmm. great ideas didn't go anywhere. And so what they learned was you couldn't really get an idea to, to market Unless you understood how to navigate it through the organization. Now that sounds a little abstract, but it was they 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 were so used to sort of doing their innovation work behind closed doors and then coming out, ta-da, here it is, isn't it gorgeous? And the customer would say, Yeah, it's gorgeous. Whereas this was about, you know, here are some ideas, but are you guys set up to manufacture this kind of thing? And would this make sense in your markets, in your context? And once they realized that their failure in this case, which was in pursuit of a goal, um, no bigger, you know, it's a single project, no bigger than it had to be, um, with a hypothesis that nonetheless failed, then they stepped back and said, okay, what can we learn from it? And how can we retool and rethink our processes and our relationships with our clients so that it'll go better next time? I just want to break down the elements of an intelligent failure as you, as you went through them. So we we want to do it in new territory, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not, we're not talking about we're talking about stretching yourself, right? Yes. Not not just yes. not things uh, that are comfortable. 
Right. Or and that's no. why we and that's why this is so critical to learning because it it means that we're doing this in some kind of new realm for us. We're we're advancing beyond our comfort zone. That's right. We're 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 advancing beyond our comfort zone. We're developing new skills. We may be you know discovering sort of new possibilities whether in our life or for our companies and some things will go well and some things won't. So it's in new territory. You can't look it up on the internet and say, oh, how do you get result X? Right. No one knows. And it's opportunity driven and informed by prior knowledge, you say. So in other words, yeah. it's not it's not random. This is something it's not I'm random. Not, yeah. yeah. I'm not just, just doing something to do it. I'm trying to experiment. I'm trying to learn something. So I'm I'm taking a right. risk in a particular direction. Yes, I'm trying to develop a much smaller, much less expensive, much less power-intense microphone. Right. I know there's a reason, you know, I, I know it will be well used if I can get there, but right now, Mother Nature and, and existing science doesn't seem to be allowing it. And then the one I keep coming back to is the the question of size, you know. Yes. That, that, and and this gets back to also that idea about the flight simulator, you know, that we want yes. we want to be doing making mistakes that are manageable, you know, where the downside risk is not too catastrophic. Um, so that I mean, I've been thinking about this sort of in a business context where we where can we build simulators? Where you know is it right. a focus? Is it a focus group? You know, is yes. it a yes. is, it, is it a prototype? Uh, you know, a, right. a, 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 a pilot, a prototype. Mm -hmm. Right. We we want if we have a new technology or a new new product or a new service, we want to pilot it before we roll it out in the whole market. I mean, how many sort of corporate failures in history were simply fiascos because the size was too big? You know, New right. Coke. Right. It was it was one of the, you know, one of the biggest product failures in history, uh -huh. and. I think in the effort to keep it under wraps and behind closed doors, they sort of failed the simple test of let's sort of find out how our, you know, loyal customers will react to us taking away the product that they have loved for decades. Right. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have, I'm gonna go think about other places we can build simulators. You know, because yeah. I think I think and then because the, the corollary to that is within that safer environment. We should push ourselves. We should take risk. You know, we want that. We want the pilot who's in the flight simulator to be pushed to the edge of their skills so exactly. that they'll learn. That's exactly. not a that's not a place no, to play right. it safe. Right. Imagine if you go into the simulator and you just don't want to take any risks and you want to <laughs> right. get it right and you want to fly a perfect flight and have everybody applaud you when you come back out. That would be a real waste of time. Right? It would that would not be using the opportunity of an entirely safe opportunity to take risks and see what happens. And, right. you know, what happens if, um, you know, something goes desperately wrong? How do you recuperate? And and that's the place we want you to experiment. And then to me, the way, if I understand correctly, this all comes together in this sense of, okay, you've, take, you've made an intelligent failure, but where the rubber hits the road is like, Am I going to learn from it? What am right. I going to learn and do right. better differently? And and I might make this intelligent failure, but still not really take away the lessons from it. So I think you you also encourage us to kind of to, to be strategic about that and to not just rush past it, not just to say, okay, well, let's just try harder or let's try something. Let's just try something right. randomly different. No, we were testing a hypothesis. That hypothesis was proven wrong. 
but let's use that data to make it now a better hypothesis. So a, a right. much more um, strategic way of learning. Is that right? Yes. Don't skip the analysis, right? And mm. and go deep. Don't say, you know, oh, it didn't work. I'm just going to pivot, right? And and try something else. But you're trying what something else, else yeah. should be thoughtful, right? What what should we try now? Like, what do mm. we learn from that small, safe failure about what would might work instead. And if you don't, you know, don't pause to do that analysis, um, then I think you're at risk of wasting subsequent resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you say, you know, a lot of people talk about having a bias for action, but what you're saying, <laughs> what you, you say we really want a bias yeah. for iteration. Iteration. Yes. Iteration is the magic word here, right? It is. It is. Because a bias for action, I love the idea of a bias for action, but it may inadvertently imply like just go for it, right? Almost without mm -hmm. um, too big you know, and, and without enough thought. Um, whereas um, where a bias for iteration says, I know it's new territory. I know it might not be perfect. Uh, but the point of this next trial is mm -hmm. to get me closer, right? get me closer to the one after that. Right. Because, I mean, iteration, an iteration is a particular kind of action. Yeah. It's an action that builds on a previous action. Yes. Right. So that it's, it's directional. You know, there's, right. there's, uh, you're, you're heading somewhere and that's the way you're going to learn and grow, not just by doing action after action after action, but mm -hmm. actions that build on on one another. Right, we're not throwing darts at the wall. We're we're making progress on on developing the knowledge we need. Okay, well, Amy, I'm going to wrap up with a question that feels a little risky to ask. <laughs> but then again, I wouldn't be learning and growing if I weren't taking risks as a podcaster, right? So, right. <laughs> so my question is, what mistakes or failures have you experienced in the process of writing this book? <laughs> Adding to that, what have you learned that you will do differently in the next iteration? You know, whatever your next <laughs> research project or your next book is, what are you going to do differently because of your experience with this book? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I think that I really underestimated how much the second half of the book was was new territory. So, mm. I, you know, I put I put together a proposal for the book project, and the first part, really the, the first half of the book, was stuff I've been thinking about for years. I had stories in my head, I had data, I had I had evidence, um, and then the last part, you know, the sort of the part about self-awareness and situation awareness and context awareness or, or system awareness were ideas I had. And they were they mm -hmm. relate to research I'm aware of and have done over the years, but they were not as well fleshed out. So, I mean, I was a little overconfident in thinking, yes, this will work. Mm -hmm. And then once I finally, you know, got to the blank page after finishing the complex failure chapter, I realized I was in trouble, right? mm. that, that it was just, I mean, it was going to be more work than I thought. Maybe that's mm -hmm. a, not such a bad thing because doing work is good. Um, but but I really had to sort of um, slow down and dig deep and, and look broadly around what do we know. In a way, the mistake was thinking, oh, yeah, I got this. Here's the proposal. Now it's mm -hmm. going to roll out. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the um, then I guess the insight is 
very close to what we were just talking about, which is the iteration. Mm -hmm. um, that I, I ripped up way more than I, you know, wrote along the way, and ultimately, um, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. Although chapter seven still gnaws at me, I, <laughs> I, I think I could do better with that one. Well, thank you for being vulnerable around Chapter 7. <laughs> I think it's good to hear a professional uh, mistake expert yeah, admit yeah. her mistakes. And so then maybe the learning you have is that when you write your next book proposal, you'll kick the tires on whatever the Chapter yeah, 7 is. And maybe that, so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe the, there's no way to completely avoid iteration. Right. right. But but there is a um, there is a way to not be overconfident on that yeah i got this this is the right you know the the right structure and the right the right lessons well folks you heard it from a, an expert in failure the failure expert herself amy edmonds <laughs> yep. you, guilty uh, guilty as charged she she makes mistakes just like the rest of us uh and she learns from them and hopefully we all can do the same with the help of this book. Well, thank you very much, Amy, for coming on our show. Really enjoyed talking to you. Michael, thank you so much for inviting me. That was Amy Edmondson, author of Right Kind of Wrong, speaking with my colleague, Michael Kovnat. If you'd like to hear more from Amy, check out the book bike she made for The Next Big Idea. It's a 15-minute audio summary of her book, and the only place you can hear it is in the Next Big Idea app. You won't want to miss it. Go to your app store and download the Next Big Idea app today. If you'd like to hear more from Michael, follow the Next Big Idea daily wherever you get your podcasts. I know I'm biased, but it really is a phenomenal show. Just 10 minutes every morning, a great way to start your day. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. The team at the LinkedIn Podcast Network has built us a podcast flight simulator where we can fail intelligently every week. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.